Welcome to the Israel Conversation by Massah Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Massah Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I am your host, Mike Lunderberg, here joined by returning co-host, Alan Goldman. How you doing, Alan? Good. Thank God, Mike. How are Good. you? We haven't, we haven't had you on the pod for a while, but you're yeah. here today for a very special guest who, honestly, I was just saying to him, I don't exactly know how to introduce Hillel Halkin. If you listen to this podcast, and I have to explain to you who Hillel Halkin is, that's not such a good uh, sign for us, I think. But Hillel is, is, a, is a person, a lot of us, who, who, are, who try to learn and grow in understanding of our Jewish identity, our Zionist identity, our human identity. Hillel is the kind of author who writes on a number of different subjects, fiction, nonfiction, certainly uh, about Jews, Israel, and Zionism, but also on a, a broader array of topics, uh, and is uh, a, a very noted and, and uh, as an exceptional translator of Hebrew and Yiddish works. And really just somebody who we often turn to, whether it's in uh, online and in, in, in different columns that he writes, it's somebody who we turn to for wisdom and insight. And uh, we're very excited and very honored to have you here today, Hillel. Thank you. Thank you. I love to be introduced. One never hears such nice things about <laughs> oneself in any other context. Listen, and as long as it's an introduction, that's okay. Once, after 120 <laughs> becomes a eulogy, then it's not so good. And I know you've written on the subject, so so let's as, let, let, I hope it's introductions for many years for you to enjoy. We really asked you here today to talk about just because uh, uh, as I was reading your book on uh, on Hebrew modern or early modern Hebrew authors, you, you there was a chapter on the controversy between Theodor Herzl and Achada Am, and we were talking before the recording. I said I don't. For me and Alan, that was always such a classic Zionist conversation, the dispute. And I said, I don't know if my students even know about that dispute. And you said, I don't even know if they heard of Achad Ha'an, <laughs> which I fear may be true. Yeah. Some of our listeners. I, it, totally true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah 100%. Yeah. <laughs> probably 20% have probably could say, oh, that sounds familiar. And that's because of the streets named after him more yeah. than anything else. I get that a lot from students. Oh, I know that street. <laughs> Jabotinsky. In oh, Poland? I know that street. Yeah, great. Uh, Poland? No, no, in Israel. <laughs> it's in Israel. <laughs> well, Hillel, See, it would be Oscar Ginsberg in Poland, I think they would call it. I think. <laughs> well, they do like to claim a lot of things in Poland as Jewish, but yeah. that's not... What I want to hear... Um, you you you, I, you had an interesting angle on it, but but can you just give us some sort of some background on... The, the, their disagreement in general, and in particular, Achad Am's response to Alt Neuland? Well, Achad Am was the prominent Hebrew writing intellectual of his day, uh, certainly the prominent Hebrew writing Zionist intellectual of his day. And by his day, we're really talking about the 1890s and let's say the first decade of the 20th century. And until uh, Theodore Herzl came along, uh, meteorically and almost out of nowhere in the Zionist world, uh, this was in 1896 when Herzl, 97 when Herzl published his book, The Jewish State, uh, Hadam was really the preeminent Zionist thinker of his time and, and was considered very much the uncrowned leader of, of the Zionist movement in many ways. Uh, Hadam lived in Russia. He lived in Odessa in those years. 
had made uh, two trips to Palestine, had written widely on, on the subject of Zionist colonization in Palestine, of the Zionist future in Palestine, and had really come to a split conclusion. On the one hand, uh, looking at the early colonization efforts of the 1890s, early 1900s, Haddam said, look, this isn't working. The colonies are very few, they're not prospering, they're not economically viable, they're not really creating a, a new Hebrew-speaking generation, effectively. But they can be the basis of something in the future. If we give up the notion that Zionism can be an instant solution to the Jewish problem, and if we give up the notion that we can bring quickly hundreds of thousands or millions of Jews to Palestine and settle them and, and, and uh, make, make Palestine a, a quick alternative to the diaspora, and if we just concentrate on slow incremental steps and building the colonies little by little, and especially on, on building them not only economically, but intellectually and culturally, so that they can become some kind of model, a Hebrew-speaking model for Jews in the diaspora, then Zionism can fulfill a purpose. It will never solve the, the problems of the Jewish people. It will never be a homeland for more than a fraction of the world's Jews. It doesn't have the capacity to absorb that many Jews. It can be a model. It can be an inspiration. It can create a, a small paradigmatic life that Jews in the diaspora can admire and seek to emulate. But that's really all we role that a, a Jewish community in the land of Israel could play if it developed properly. And then suddenly Herzl comes along in the mid, uh, mid to late 1890s with a totally different approach. Uh, Herzl founds what, what came to be known as political Zionism, which is basically the point of view that we Jews have tremendous political power in the world that we haven't used until now. So we don't have known how to use but that if used properly, and if we organize to use it, we can use this power to obtain an international charter to the to, to Palestine, to have our rights there recognized as a people whose land this deserves to be. And then we can quickly, energetically bring hundreds of thousands or millions of Jews to this country, quickly create a Jewish state in it, um, make this state an alternative to diaspora, a, 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 a solution to anti-Semitism. Jews in the diaspora who suffer from anti-Semitism can all come to this state and live in it. And within a generation, we can solve the Jewish problem. In other words, we can solve the problem of anti-Semitism. We can solve the problem of Jewish poverty by simply bringing Jews to a prosperous society that we will create in Palestine with international support. Well, Chadam, this seemed a fantasy. This, this, <laughs> Herzl seemed to, in, to be offering pie in the sky to the Jewish people. Uh, the Herzl, the Chadamist approach, seemed defeatist, hopefully, hopelessly minimalistic, aspiring to, to much too little, and therefore sure to attain much too little. And, and this is basically where the two men clash, mm -hmm. each with its followers. And then how did Alt Neuland, Herzl's novel, if you could just give sort of a, a sense of what was in that novel, how did, uh, how did that novel set off a Chada'am anew? Why, why did that raise his ire in particular? 
Okay. Um, Herzl wrote, as I said, published his Jewish State, and uh, which was basically a brief outline, uh, both an argument for the necessity for a Jewish state, not necessarily in Palestine. Can I jump to and ask you as a translator, you, you're, do you prefer the Jewish state to the Jew state? Der Judenstadt? Judenstadt. You know, a lot has been made about the subtleties and the difference between a Jewish state and, and the state of the Jews, which would perhaps be a more correct translation of the Judenstadt. But the state of a state of the Jews is clumsy in English, and you can't just keep repeating it. And I think a Jewish state is simply a, okay. a preferable term. In any case, Herzl published the, the book in 1896 or seven. It was both a explanation of why a Jewish state was crucially needed to solve the problem of the Jews in the world, and it was a an attempt to explain briefly how such a state could be quickly created. In turn, by international agreements, diplomatic negotiations, Jewish stock companies that would float bonds and loans to support the project. Uh, Herzl thought in very grandiose terms. Mm-hmm. He was the exact opposite of Hadam, who, who was very, very cautious in this thing. And Herzl then started the call for the first Zionist Congress, which convened in 1897. Hadam attended it, felt that it was hopelessly unrealistic in its goals, and refused to attend future. Zionist Congresses, which he boycotted. And Akhadam's criticism and the criticism of Akhadam's followers, uh, which he had many uh, of Hartzell, was mainly, look, this is not practical, this is not feasible. This man has no real practical idea of how any of this can be accomplished. In 1902, uh, Hartzell then decided to write a novel. Hartzell was a playwright, a a dramatist, a, a newspaper columnist by profession. He was very facile with his pen, and he decided to write a novel, uh, a a polemical novel in a way, because it was a novel that was not written for artistic purposes, it was was simply written to to serve a political purpose. And the purpose was that this novel would be to demonstrate how such a state really realistically could be created, and how it would operate and function once it was created. So he wrote this novel called Old Altneuland, Old Newland, uh, which is a story about basically how two individuals who have gone to live on an isolated island in the, in the South Pacific come back after 20 years and discover a Palestine that has radically been changed in 20 years. It's gone from being a wilderness largely lived in by Arabs to being a Jewish, modern, thriving Jewish state within an incredibly short space of time. And the book explains how this was done and how it functions and, and, and how it all came into being. And Herzl thought this would satisfy many readers who were wondering, well, how could all this be brought about? Chadam read uh, Herzl's book and wrote a withering book review of it, which he argued, first of all, that Herzl, again, was writing purely in terms of fantasy. And second of all, and this was perhaps a point that Hadam stressed even more, he said, look, Herzl is describing a Jewish state here that has really nothing Jewish about it. Because Herzl has nothing really Jewish about him. He comes from a, a, he came from an assimilated Jewish background. He's not familiar really with the Jewish world. He's not familiar with Jewish sources. He doesn't know 10 words of the Hebrew. He doesn't know Jewish tradition. He doesn't know Judaism as a religion. He's really come to all this as an outsider. He's not like us Eastern European Jews who 
you know, imbibe Jewishness and Judaism with our mother's milk. And he's created a state, an imaginary Jewish state here, which is, is full of opera houses and railroads and the most modern technology, yeah. tractors and modern agriculture and, and European type cities and all that, but has nothing Jewish about it. It, it, it's uh, the, the Jewishness is just window dressing. Basically, Herzl is describing a, another a successful, a, a utopian European state in which everything works, everything functions. It's a social democracy. It's, it's a welfare state. Everyone lives well. Everyone is supported. There's no poverty. Everyone is happy. But no one is really Jewish. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was the substance of, of a Hadam's review. Now, they're, I mean, because they're both really reacting to different, like, different problems that they see going on. No, I mean, I mean, it, even if you like Herzl's, um, you know, uh, you know, need not just pie in the sky, but need for sort of an immediate response. He's he's responding to a, sort of a different problem he sees. No. Yes, uh, I think Herzl and Achad Amin in general, Western. I mean, Herzl, though he grew up in Central Europe in uh, in Hungary. In the Austro-Hungarian Empire can really be thought of as a Western Zionist. The Chadam came from Eastern Europe and, and can be thought of as an Eastern Zionist. And Eastern and Western Zionists tended to see the Jewish problem very differently. But someone like a Chadam and for the uh, Eastern European Jewish intellectual, Zionistly oriented Jewish intellectuals of his day, the problem was really one of Jewish culture and, and Jewish cultural continuity. Anti-Semitism was there. It was severely there in Eastern Europe. But from their point of view, it was not the pressing problem because it had always been there. Jews had always coped with it. They would cope with it in the future too. The real problem for Ahadam was assimilation, which was already rampant in the West and was now becoming more and more prevalent in the East. And Ahadam said, look, in the modern world, unless we Jews have a culture. We have a 3,000-year-old tradition. It's been largely built about our, around our religion, but there's much more to it than that. We're people with our own language, Hebrew, our own culture. But this isn't, none of this will survive in the modern world unless we have a country of our own. Because in modernity with the nation state, more and more Jews are going to assimilate to the culture of whatever state they live in, and authentic Jewish Hebraic culture is going to be lost. And with that, our people will be lost, will come to an end. The only way to perpetuate us, ourselves, is in a state of our own, where we have our own language, our own culture, which will be state-supported like the culture of every other people in Europe. And that's why he saw that small model that you spoke about before. That was a need for a small model that would radiate out. Because for the foreseeable future, it would be be a minority of Jews. Herzl, who... uh, as the Easterners charged, really was not culturally terribly Jewish. He had a smattering of a Jewish education as a child. He wasn't totally ignorant. But he knew relatively little about Jewish culture. It wasn't the world he lived in. He lived in a world of European culture. And cultural issues, frankly, did not interest him all that much. And, and that was Jewish cultural issues. He didn't think of Hebrew as necessarily the language of the Jewish state. He tended to think it would be German. Uh, it didn't concern him much. The problem that concerned actually overwhelmingly was anti-Semitism. Because as a Western Jew who wanted to integrate in the world around him, as the Easterners really did not, I mean, the 
Easterners were proud cultural Jews. The Westerners had all come. I mean, Herschel's background was that of that of most Western Zionists. He had wanted to be part of Western European culture. He didn't really want to be a Jew, singled out as a Jew particularly. But he more and more came to feel, because of anti the anti-Semitism around him, that this was impossible, that the Christian world was not going to let him be part of it, or any other Jews who lived in, in the world. And that, that, that anti-Semitism was, for many reasons, going to grow worse and worse, not better and better. And that it would ultimately threaten not just Jewish integration, but it would threaten Jewish uh, livelihoods and even Jewish lives, ultimately. I mean, Herzl had a terrible premonition that anti-Semitism was going to reach catastrophic proportions. So for Herzl, creating a Jewish state was above all creating a state where Jews would be safe from anti-Semitism would be able to rule themselves, but would not have to worry about anti-Semites being in control of their lives or threatening their lives. And this was a very perspective from the Chadams. I mean, Chadam, each thought the other's worry was peripheral. Chadams thought, yeah, sure, anti-Semitism is a problem, but it's not the Well, they're problem. each worrying about the other guy's community. Herzl's worried about Chadams' community getting killed in pogroms. Chadams worried about Herzl's community assimilating. Exactly, you're right. I mean, that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, you know, uh, Hadam said, look, they've always been pogroms. There's nothing new about this. <laughs> and Herzl said, no, this is all new. You don't know what you're talking about. You're involved now with a modern, mm -hmm. potentially lethal, ruthless anti-Semitism that's going to be different from anything that came before. Yeah, they, they were both right and they were both wrong. I think all along they're both right and they're both wrong. I mean, I, I think it's today, if we look at it, we, we really see that both were proved right and, and wrong in, in different ways. And that the, the only really sensible way of looking at the whole debate between them is, is to, to realize that you have to integrate what was right about both of them uh, and, and, and create a more holistic point of view. Can you be a little more specific about the, what they were right and what they were wrong about? Well, Achad Ha'am, I think, was wrong about many things. He was wrong about anti-Semitism. It was, unfortunately, a far greater menace than he realized. He was wrong when he, when he kept saying, look, Zionism has time. Herzl is trying to rush things. He's, he's like a typical false messiah. He wants redemption to come tomorrow. We're in no hurry. We can build up a Palestinian Jewish community little by little. We have to concentrate on quality and not on quantity. Quality takes time. Let's forget about numbers. We don't have to get many Jews to Palestine. We just have to build up a, a, a cultural paradigm there. He was strong about this. Time was of the essence. Mm -hmm. uh, the Jewish people was in a race against time and both won and lost that race. I mean, it won the race to create a Jewish state just in the nick of time. It lost the race and, and, and the race to save the Jews of Europe, who, of course, were largely annihilated because Zionism did not act fast enough. And Achadam, I think, in general, was wrong in his conception that you could create a small uh, cultural model in Palestine that was not state-sponsored and that did not have the uh, apparatus of the state at its disposal. Uh, Herzl, I think, was wrong in, in his not understanding that uh, 
Jews as a people could only be moved and mobilized if the deepest and most root feelings of theirs were appealed to. And these were feelings that had to do with Jewish tradition, with Judaism, with Hebrew, with the land of Israel, with, with deep, deep Jewish emotions, particularly in, in Eastern Europe, where everyone grew up with these things in blood. Uh, anti-Semitism, the fear of anti-Semitism, which was was not enough, mm -hmm. and, and and Herzl didn't really understand that unless there was a more positive element to this, not just the fear of anti-Semitism, but a deep Jewish pride in Jewish culture and Jewish cultural achievements and Judaism itself, the Jewish people could not be mobilized and galvanized. For such an enormous effort as Zionism required, so so each one of them really, uh, I, I think, was both right and wrong, as you say. Each one of them lacked the perspective that the other had. And this is a weird question, but do you think we're doing that today? Like, do you think in how in today's Zionist conversation, Herzl had a blind spot, Achad Am had a blind spot. What do you think are our blind spots today when we talk about Israel and Zionism and its future? Well. Let me begin by saying that, uh, as, as I say in, in the essay, in, in the book, that Achadaanism has to a great extent become the post-1948 ideology of the Jewish establishment, both in Israel and in the diaspora. That is, until a Jewish state, until the state of Israel was created, I mean, Herzl's imperative seemed first and foremost I mean, that the, the, the whole struggle of Zionism was to create such a state. But Herzl's vision was that once such a state was created, basically diaspora Judaism would slowly or perhaps not so slowly disappear. Herzl was convinced that Judaism and the diaspora, the Jewish people in the diaspora had no future, largely because of anti-Semitism. And he was, therefore, he believed that once the Jewish state was established, there would be a clear alternative. Mm -hmm. Jews who wished to, 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 to live as Jews would immigrate to that state and live there as Jews. Jews who were not interested would do their best to assimilate successfully or not in, in European culture and would disappear. Herzl had no real interest in, in, in Jewish continuity in the diaspora, did not particularly believe in it, and didn't care very much about it. Uh, Am's vision was radically different. Am said, no, you're wrong. The diaspora will always exist. Anti-Semitism is not such an insoluble problem. Well, we will never concentrate all the world's Jews in, the state, in a Jewish state or a Jewish community in Palestine. It will not have the capacity to observe the world's, absorb the world's Jews. Therefore, the world's Jews will continue to exist and probably be the great majority of Jews in the world. And we have to think of, of what the relationship between the Jewish community in Palestine, which will be a kind of, will, which will play the leading role which will be the, the model, as we've said, what its relationship will be with the diaspora jury that will nevertheless continue to exist and that we want to exist and to flourish. And basically, once the state of Israel was created, that very quickly became the accepted paradigm, both in Israel and America. That is, nobody really wanted 
after the creation of Israel to push, uh, I mean, nobody in power and in Jewish power wanted to push Herzl, Herzl's view, which was the view of others also, that the diaspora had no future. Mm-hmm. Israel, Israel desperately, the Israel desperately needed diaspora support in its early years, particularly American Jewish support, and certainly did not want to be in a position of, of coming to the Jews of America and saying, look, you, you have to help us, you have to support us politically, you have to give us your money, but we, we don't believe in you and we don't believe in your future. Seems uh, it's not a tenable yeah. It seems simple. And in politeness, uh, in parentheses, that I have often been accused of, I think, quite correct. <laughs> um, Even on this issue? On this issue, specifically on this. Especially. And uh, so both in America and ultimately in Israel, it became very both convenient and in a way pra- practical, pragmatic to, to adopt the Chad Ha'am's vision. Yes, there is now a state, a Jewish state. It's, it's tremendously important. It will serve as a light, as a beacon to the Jews of the diaspora, but the Jews of the diaspora are also going to continue to exist. They will continue to exist in large numbers. We want them to thrive. We want them to flourish. The state of Israel will help them to flourish. They will contribute from their part to this state. It's now a reciprocal, will be a reciprocal relationship. And that's the model we are still living with in 2021 or 22, basically. We're still living with a Chad Am's conception for the most part, institutionally. Yeah, I think it's gotten actually stronger, just as we see. My big symbol today is that they changed the name of the Diaspora Museum from Diaspora Museum to Anu Museum. Okay. But, but I think we do have to differentiate between the success of the Hadam's model institutionally, that is in, in terms of Jewish schools, Jewish educational institutions, gov- Jewish Israeli governmental institutions, uh, diaspora synagogues, etc., etc., what, what they, how they see it, which is very much still in a Hadam's terms. And what's really been happening all along in the Jewish street, both in Israel, and in the diaspora, and in America specifically, where you now have, uh, in America, you have, as we all know, rampant assimilation, mm-hmm. a growing disinterest in Israel, a growing even repudiation of Israel among many American Jews, mm-hmm. uh, a growing feeling in America that Israel has nothing really to give us and nothing to teach us, and that we have to create our own Jewish existence here independently of a Jewish state. And in Israel, you have the uh, the parallel and mirror image of that. I think if we were really to be honest, the average Israeli Jew is supremely disinterested in diaspora Jewry, has both very little knowledge of it and very little interest in it, is totally Israel-centered in his conception of Jewish life. And, and, and thinks of, of Jewish life as, as, as revolving entirely around Israel and, 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 and not really uh, connected much to the diaspora, except perhaps for Israelis who have lived in America for, for long periods of time. So, wow, but if, you, it's you also have, true that their, that their schools and their hospitals and even equipment in the army has been donated by Jews from the diaspora. They're, they're very, you know, the very fabric of their lives are constantly affected by contributions from the diaspora, but they, they don't connect to that. They don't connect to that. So that you, you have here a situation where I would say institutionally, Achad Ha'am has won. Mm-hmm. In the street, I think he's losing. Mm. I mean, he's not. 
I don't think this is really the the, the Adam's model is winning out in the among the Jewish people, taken as a people and not as as the institutions that represent them. And there's a certain dichotomy here. Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking about like Hebrew. When you think about that, right, the, the Hebrew language, how illiterate, um, you know, Jews who are not living in Israel are of, of Hebrew. Uh, Unabashedly so. You have here a great paradox. Hebrew, as long, all, all the thousands of years that Hebrew was the native language of not a single Jew, no Jew spoke it as a mother tongue. It was the second language of every single educated Jew in the world. Mm-hmm. Even of some Jews who weren't so educated. I mean, every Jew prayed in Hebrew, every Jew knew, but, but every Jew who had any education had a Hebrew education. It was the language Jews from all over the world communicated uh, with each other in. It was the language they wrote in. It was the language of Jewish intellectual discourse. Now that we have that Hebrew has suddenly become the spoken language of millions and millions and millions of Israelis and even of Palestinian Arabs. It is the second. It's now. Now there's the first language of millions of Jews. It's the second language of almost not a very few Jews in the there anymore. Yeah. The Hebrew literacy in the has never been so low as it is now in the past. When Israelis and uh, American Jews get together, it's taken for granted that their language is English, not Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that made me sad. I, I never thought about that till I was reading your book. Yeah. That I always wonder. You know, I always imagine that these early authors. We're writing in Hebrew, and you know this sort of Zionist intense, you know, uh, fans were 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 reading that. But your point was every Jewish household household could pick up a Hebrew novel and read it if they were Jews in those days. That that was very disheartening to me about today. Every, every, look, basically, I would say every Jewish household in which there was an educated Jew, and an educated yeah. Jew in the nineteenth century, a Jewish educated Jew meant a yeshiva graduate. Someone would have been to Hecha and had gone on to study at the yeshiva. These people were not necessarily observant. On the contrary, uh, almost all of them were defectors from observance. I mean, Zionism grew out of secular Zionism, which was these really the main current in the Zionist movement in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, grew entirely out of the religious, the world of religious Judaism. It was entirely the creation of young people. Uh, not so young, who had grown up as observant Jews in observant homes and then left it. But they had the education of an observant Jew, and this meant Hebrew literacy, yeah. And, and, and throughout the 19th century, uh, and, and still in the early years of the 20th century, Hebrew was the language of Jewish intellectual discourse, the language in which Jewish Jews wrote and, and communicated, yeah. So the, the, the Hebrew novelists were not necessarily writing in Hebrew for ideological reasons. Mm-hmm. Some may have been. You know, there were Hebrew writers who were anti-Zionists. There were Hebrew writers who were non-Zionists. They wrote because Hebrew was the natural language for them to write in. It was the language that they had grown up with as the language of written communication. As they were inventing new ways for it to work in, in ways that hadn't been used. You know, right. In your analysis of how the Echada'am model works today institutionally, what do you think of, and it's been popping up in different I don't know, opinions pop up so quickly now and they burst like bubbles, but people are complaining that it's wrong for the the chief rabbi of South Africa, and I'm seeing many columns, it's wrong for Israel to not allow diaspora Jews in when they want to come during the pandemic. 
that Israel has to keep its doors open to all Jews all the time, no matter what. Have you encountered that idea? Me, that, strikes, that strikes me as very foolish. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Israel, just, just as Israel does, you know, has always reserved the right to reject Jews uh, who have criminal records or, or things like that, uh, obviously a country has the right to protect the health of its citizens. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see that Israel has any Zionist obligation to begin to let Jews come in who will infect Israelis. Those Jews had, uh, what, 52 years, 48 to 2000, they had 73 years to come to Israel and have mm -hmm. Now that they have COVID-19, now that they, they have to come, I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's this, it's this strange sense that <clears throat> they've been educated in this Achada model that you're describing that, you know, well, they're diaspora and we're Israel, but Israel really serves them. And so it has to be, even though they don't pay taxes and they don't go to the army, they have as much right as a citizen of the state because they're Jews. There's this strange right. mixing of messaging that I don't quite understand what the mindset is because it seems very common sense. I mean, all nations are doing it. It's nothing to do with, it, it, you, you close your borders. I, I understand that citizens have a right in, but if you're not an Israeli citizen, that matters in this situation well, and they're having trouble understanding it. Look, I mean, I think the people who are writing these articles are the people who are most connected and concerned with Jewish identity for those masses that we're talking about who are leaving in droves or not connected at all. So they're expressing a fear more than I think they are of expressing like a logical argument. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. well, what would you say that fear is? The fear is, is that that um, they see, as you as you exactly mentioned, that their 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 um, communities and their students and are all much less connected to Israel, and so this is just one more step because we know that an Israel program is critical in um, diaspora youth or even student uh, connection. You spend you spend even ten days here, you're more connected to a place. We said anywhere you go on vacation, any, right? Anywhere you go to Mexico, you and become to your more Jewish connected. Identity. So, and so you come more connected to your Jewish identity when you spend time here. So if we're losing a whole generation because there's a small window when really uh, a high school student or a college student is going to really come. So if we're closing that window on them, so that's you know a huge. Um, uh, uh, block in there in, in, in that um, paradigm, you could say, of education and identity. You know, as long as we're on the subject, let's be honest. How many Jewish kids? How many parents of Jewish kids are going to be traveling to Israel now uh, in a time of, of epidemic plague? Even if Israel were living, I mean, it's not as if uh, hundreds of thousands of Jewish kids are going to arrive with birthright in Israel in the course of this year and next year in a time of epidemic. So it, it, it seems to me, the whole argument seems more on a symbolic level. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right, symbolically, yeah. you know, these people. No, I think, that the, yeah, I think that's the fear. I think it's, a, it's, it's people reacting to a fear of that, that's all. I mean, I, I, I was wondering if, we, if I can just switch a little bit of the conversation to sure. Israel. How much do you think Chada Am's vision for that cultural center model of Israel in Israel, is has Jew, you know, a Jewish revitalization or whatever you're going to. Israeli literature, successful. Israeli music, Israeli yeah. theater, Israeli cinema. That's a very good question, and it's a it's a key question. I mean, it's really a crucial question. You know, I, I think 
in, in the early years of the pre-state period of, of the Yishuvim, uh, the Jewish community in Palestine, and, and after the establishment of the state, certainly throughout the 1950s and 60s, uh, the Echad Amis model was, was really very much that of most Israeli intellectuals and educators and cultural crea creators too. In other words, Echad Am, uh, and we haven't much touched on this aspect of his thought so far, Echad Am believed that uh, it was, would be a kind of seamless continuity between Judaism as a religion and the Jewish culture that could grow out of that religion in modern times, and particularly in uh, a Hebrew-speaking community in Palestine. And 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 Nachadam thought there would be a kind of natural tr transition from one to the other, uh, that as religious observance uh, waned among the Jewish people and in the, the Jewish community of Palestine too, more and more of its components would survive in secularized form in the secular Hebrew culture, music, literature, so on. And that therefore, a secular Zionism would really be the, the cultural inheritor of the Jewish religious past. Now, Akadama, I think, was wrong in two respects. First of all, like most Jewish intellectuals of his age, I, he, he totally underestimated the power of Judaism to survive and even prosper in modernity. I mean, Achad Am really thought that Judaism was slowly withering away from the perspective of, of his age or even of later ages. That may have been the case, but we now know it didn't happen. Right. Achad Am, I think, also greatly uh, was over optimistic about the ability of a secular Jewish culture to inherit and integrate and uh, adapt the, the various elements of traditional Jewish culture, of Ju Judaism, really, so that the prospect that they would one day be in a Jewish state, a large number, you know, millions of Hebrew-speaking Jews who would know almost nothing about Judaism, take almost no interest in it, have very little culturally Jewish about them apart from the speaking Hebrew. This was not something that Achad Am took into account. And yet, really, the question is, uh, where are these millions going? These millions going. I mean, where is Israeli culture going? Is it going in the direction of more and more, you know, a greater divide between a, a secular public that has no knowledge or interest in Jewish tradition and a traditional public that is more and more alienated from secularism or is on the contrary going ultimately towards more and more of a synthesis between these two worlds. Uh, and I think it's very hard to say that there are so many things happening in Israel today and there are so many things happening and pointing in different directions. Uh, I, I was actually on a Zoom a, a podcast, a Zoom program with uh, Yossi Klein Halevi the other day. Uh, uh, you, of course, know he's a prominent uh, American uh, writer living in it for many, many years in Israel, by now an Israeli like I am. Mm -hmm. We were talking about this very issue, and I was, in a way, taking a rather pessimistic view. I was saying, look, uh, secular Israel is not really achieving the Echad vision of carrying on in secular form Jewish tradition. And, and you know, he was saying, no, that this isn't really true. You, 
Look, look at the, the musical scene in Israel today. Mm-hmm. Look, look how much Israeli pop music now integrates Jewish themes, team and Jewish... When he's religion. involved on social media, he's often sharing songs and illustrating their Jewish themes, and yeah, he's very uh, involved. Actually, in I, I, I had to throw up my hands. I say, look, you also have got me, because this is a world I'm not really familiar with. Mm-hmm. I don't follow it. But it's true that there, there are all kinds of currents in Israeli life today, uh, you know, underground currents. If we, we, there's a conception, which is really, I think, a myth, that Israel is, the, is divided into two worlds, the religious world and the secular world. There's no in-between. And that's true, again, to a great extent, institutional. I mean, there's religious Judaism has a tremendous institutional presence in Israeli life. Secular uh, Judaism has its own tremendous institutional presence. You have small and not very significant institutions like conservative and reform religion in Israel, which are really have very little influence on anything. But if you really, really look at, at people's lives, as opposed to the institutions they express themselves through, there is a tremendous middle in Israel. I mean, there, there, there's, there's a whole world of people who are neither entirely uh, observant nor entirely secular, who, who have some element of, you know, observes certain many aspects of Judaism in their lives that do not do so in any strict uh, or compulsive terms. You have all kinds of currents going on of, of, of young Jews in Israel who are looking for some kind of connection to Judaism without seeking to find it in traditional institutional forms. Jews-Raelis. Traditional Shmuel Rosner calls it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you, you, you have today in Israel, it's, it's really a, a fascinating situation where many, many things are happening. It's very hard to see what are the long-term trends and what are just the, 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 the shorter-term trends, what are the fads and what is really here for good. But uh, I would agree ultimately with the Yossi Klein holiday that we, we, we should... We don't need to be so pessimistic about the future of of, of Judaism, <laughs> of, of non-institutionalized Judaism. That is the least optimistic optimism I've ever heard expressed. We don't have to be so pessimistic. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I'm limiting uh, my pessimism. That's how positively I'm looking. <laughs> Maybe that's hello, Hulkin optimism. You know, a lot of it has to do in the social circles you move in. I move in, in social circles that don't, on the whole, express many. I mean, most of my friends are on the political left. They're, they're thoroughly secularized. These are the people who are, whom I know, who I befriend, who I mix with, uh, whose children I know. And in Jewish terms, these are the people whom one has a reason, who give one reason, feelings for pessimism about the future of secularized Judaism in this country. But I think I may simply not be sufficiently exposed to those forces that you like. You'll see Klein Olavius that are reasons for optimism. And also the you forces know, I, of I, assimilation that will bring those two groups more. Right. The, the, I, I was saying one of the things I was saying to Yossi, and this may seem uh, a digression, but it's not entirely, is that for many years uh, when I, and I, I did army service, as, you know, as, as he did, and as many people many old immigrants of our generation did. I think one of the great differences between American Jews who came, settled in Israel in the 70s and 80s and those who come today, that uh, we all did army service. And, and uh, I'm 
was the case. And as long as I was in the army, I said to Yossi, I really felt I had my pulse, my finger on the pulse of this country. Because in the army, you were no longer restricted to your own little social circle. You were suddenly thrown into you know, the Israeli public. You were in a unit with people from every walk of life, every ethnicity, every possible pro profession. You know, you're, you're, you're commanding officer might be a bus driver who, who, whose parents came from Iraq. And, and you, you felt like you knew what was going on in this country. Ever since I stopped doing army service, and it's been a long time now, I've lost that sense. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not as much in touch with, with uh, the grassroots of Israel as I was then. I, I wish I felt bad about that, <laughs> but I don't because I, I think what, what for me, and here I'm being selfish, for me it's when you when you take these 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 aspects of our past and show how much they how much they help me form my own identity and think about who I am and what's meaningful to me. That's why I find your writing in general so profound. So okay, so if your hand you know if you're not following the latest in Israeli pop culture, but you're but you're you're still writing and expressing yourself on these deeply powerful issues, then I don't feel so bad. I'll, I'll go to Yossi Klein-Alevi for my music reviews. <laughs> okay. And we're covered. Well, I can't believe I have to say we have to stop because I would I would love to do this for like all day long, but we're running low on time. So hope it's always the problem with my with public appearances though, when I give lectures and everything, you know, you, you talk and then there's a question period. And just when it's getting be interesting when people are getting warm some moderator gets up and says all right one more question and we're going home exactly it's always immensely frustrating for me because one really does want to go on for hours correct i think yeah. it does take time for uh, we have that sometimes even with teachers meetings where we have to schedule them longer because you need that time to get the juices flowing and and that's the way it is if it, if it would be possible to have you back in the future i would love to follow up with some other directions and other... I would be happy to. Wow, Honestly. that would be amazing. Thank you so much. Wow, I, I, it really is very much an honor. Alan came out of retirement, basically. <laughs> well, Liel couldn't join us this week, so Alan's the previous host. He came in to... I, he's like, ah, I don't know. I said, it? it's Hillel Halkin. Alan's like, I'm in. <laughs> Anytime, really. Just... Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Right. Thanks, Alan. And we don't have to Thank log you, off the Zoom yet, but it's the end of the episode, so I'm going to stop the recording. Bye-bye. Now that we're part of Masa, we decided to add a cool new segment to each episode. We're going to call the Masa Moment. There are so many people having amazing experiences here in Israel, and we just wanted you to feel part of it and know what's going on. So enjoy this week's Masa Moment. I wanted to share with you a testimonial from one of my students who took my class on wokeism and the Israel conversation. This class is primarily for students who are um, thinking about next year, the year after their gap year program, going to college and knowingly will be facing some kind of Israel conversation on their campus, um, which often is very hostile, especially to students who spent time in Israel. So this class um, is basically for students like that who uh, want to kind of understand not necessarily how to combat or respond to experiences like that, that they may experience in the coming year on college campuses, but rather understanding why it happens and how Israel's even tied into the whole political conversation. Um, so this class was the first time that we uh, 
offered it this year. And um, I wanted to read to you a testimonial for one of my students um, who took this class this past semester. So she says, I chose to take the class Woke Up Israel twice because I feel like I'm learning a new perspective that they do not teach in any other environment. I learn about why the feelings associated when mentioning Israel, Hebrew, or Jew are so strong and how it affects me and my reality. Compared to classes that talk about Israel and its history, usually in a biased light, or how to respond and fight back to anti-Zionist remarks, this class reveals the fact the facts and relevant history in an objective manner, designing the class to be open discussion with the ability to criticize both ends of the political spectrum gives an all-around experience that I personally enjoy. I'm happy that I took this class and I cannot wait to continue my learning. Masa Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the state of Israel. Masa offers life-transforming long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MasaIsrael.org for more info.